This morning, a message that I've entitled, Truly Humble. And I will tell you, as we get into this center portion of the first letter to the church at Corinth, there are some pretty tough passages here. And I'm going to forewarn you there are some pretty tough passages here. Sometimes our thought process as a human being is, well, that doesn't pertain to me. You know, I'm not being sexually immoral, or I don't have a problem with, you know, one of these sin issues that are going to come up in chapter 6. But I want to really strongly encourage you that you may well not be struggling in, in any of these areas, but I'll tell you there are a bunch of people that you know that are. And so it's extremely important for us to hear the full counsel of God's word, even in these passages which are a little tough to handle at times. I will attempt as much as is possible without doing disservice to the context and to the word of God, try and handle them with some humor. And with, as we're going to see in the Apostle Paul's life, uh, quite a little bit of sarcasm. Sarcasm can be a good tool at times to kind of get us to think outside of the box a little bit. And Paul actually uses some as we finish chapter 4 this morning. But don't look at these passages as difficult. Look at them as opportunities for us to hear the word of the Lord. They're essential for us to understand the fullness of God's plan for us and how he wants us to work in this world. And so I encourage you, as you look ahead and you go, oh, you know, that one seems kind of tough. Know this, God wants you to hear it, because maybe you're not going through it, but uh, there will be somebody that you know that will. And so it's good for us to be able to counsel others in these difficult things as well. And so with that, this morning, truly humble. Now, I don't, I'm sure none of you actually struggle with humility. Uh, that you're all just really humble and meek, and when somebody asks you about, you know, your life, you're just like, oh, well, it's just the Lord. Probably not. And at times, I think we all struggle with a lack of humility. There are times when each one of us gets lifted up a little bit with pride, and, and pride is a difficult thing to overcome in our lives. It's hard for pastors. It's hard for everybody. Pride is one of those things that creeps in oftentimes rather subtly. And it can be a, a bane to the usefulness that God would have for us in this world. Because it's real tough to be around prideful people. And we're going to find now, because the context is what we've already seen in chapter 4. Remember the first study in chapter 4, the context of that is, really we should be looking at everything from what does God think? How does God want me to speak? What would God do in that situation? How would the Lord handle that person? What is it that the Lord would have me say to that person in that situation? The crux of all things for the body of Christ really is, what does God think? And so in light of that, obviously there is an opposite to that, which is, what does Jeff think? How would Jeff handle that? Because... Jeff's perfect. There's an old Willie Nelson song. It, it, the first line of it is, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And to know me is to love me because I get more perfect every day. <laughs> it's, a lot of us are like that. You know, we're, we're, we, we struggle with, you know, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. And I know everything about everything. And I have the right answer in every situation. And I never struggle. 
And so Paul now is going to address maybe some of us this morning, certainly me. So I've shared with you before, the first person who gets each one of these messages preached to them is moi. I have to hear it first. And as I'm writing my notes, Lord, I'm not going to say that because I'd have to live it then. And I don't like that. So maybe you're not struggling with humility, being humble. Some of us are. I pray that this message will minister to each of us in, in God's own unique way. Let's pray and ask God to speak. Father, we again, Lord, just we want to have the humility of you, Jesus. And Lord, we recognize that that's a struggle for many of us, if not all of us. And so, Father, as we study uh, your word, which you authored, Lord, the Holy Spirit speaking to the Apostle Paul, uh, spoke these words to a church that was struggling. Lord, they were divided. They were accusing one another. They were making up their own little cliques. They were judging each other. Lord, help us to not do that. Help us to see each other as you see us. And Lord, we pray that you'd speak now as we study your word. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 7, it begins now here in 1 Corinthians 4. For who makes you different from another? You can paraphrase this by saying, you ain't all that. Because at the end of the day, most of us are pretty much the same. We all have faults. We all have weaknesses. We may not have the same faults. We may not have the same weaknesses. We may not struggle in the same areas. We may not have the same gifts and talents. We may not have the same good things. But realistically, if our comparative measure, our standard is Christ, we ain't all that. We, we can all improve. None of us are the standards in and of ourselves. Because if your measure or comparison of other people is you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to look at other people from your standard, and that's not too tough to meet. Not too tough to meet. And so what you normally do is you go find people who are beneath your standard. And that's where you get that critical spirit. That's where you begin to judge. You look at other people's faults and weaknesses and go, wow, I'm better than they are. And here's why we do that. Makes us feel good, doesn't it? You ain't all that. What makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? You see, at the end of the day, and think on this very closely, at the end of the day, there's nothing that you are, there's nothing you have, there's nothing you will become. There isn't anything in your life as a child of God that didn't come from the Lord. He gave you everything, including your personality, your stature, your beauty, your money, your brains, your intellect, your ability to logically reason. He gave you everything. The reason that you are who you are and what you are is because of what He has done in you, to you, for you, and wants to do through you. So if you look at your own life, 
realistically, you don't have any reason to take credit for it. And I don't have it to take for mine either. What God is doing, very often, He does in spite of me. Amen? And you too. The good things that come out of your life, very often, are actually in conflict with your flesh. And so it says... Or who makes you differ from another? And I love the sarcasm. I like sarcasm. He's, he's talking to the church at Corinth going, Come on, guys. Think about it for a second. I mean, really? What you have, you did not, did you not receive? Now, if you indeed receive it, which is the truth, this is rhetorical. Of course you received it. It came from God. Why do you boast as if, you'd had, if you had not received it? Why are you basically purporting to the world, telling your Christian friends, the people around you, and the world that you live in, why are you boasting about who you are and what you are and what you can do compared to everybody else when you don't have a single thing that God didn't already do in you and gave to you as a gift? You see, pride doesn't really belong in our lives. That's a tough subject, because we live in a world that exalts pride. Amen? All you got to do is turn on the TV, grab a newspaper if you can still find one, go on a blog somewhere. You're going to find out that most people think pretty highly of themselves. At the end of the day, compared to God, isn't that kind of nonsense? Think about it. From God's perspective, when human beings are exalting themselves over others, it's pretty much silly. I love verse 8. You talk about biting sarcasm. I mean, this is like in your face. Oh, that's right. You're already full. You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. You are so awesome that we want to be just like you. That's what he's saying. You see, when I look at my own heart and I realize that it's deceitful and desperately wicked, just exactly as Scripture says, and I realize that I don't know everything, and I look at other people in light of my weaknesses instead of my strengths, hear me well. I look at other people in light of my own weaknesses and insufficiencies instead of my strengths. This piece of sarcasm applies to me. Ooh, that's right. It's me we're talking about here. And so when I begin to look at other people's lives and I look at them correctly, I see them through my weaknesses, not my strengths. I'm not looking at them going, man, look how deficient you are compared to me. Oh, that's right, I'm a king, you're nothing. That's right, I'm so wonderful, everyone should want to be just like me. God help us if that's the way we live our lives, because it's going to be a very miserable place in the church, and in our homes, and in this world. Jesus did not live that life while he was here on this earth. You're already rich. You reigned as kings without us. You know, Paul left. He he went to the church, planted the church, and then takes off. They're so we're going to see how messed up they are when we get to chapter six. Okay, it's ugly. Chapter five is almost as bad. 
They weren't doing that well. Isn't it weird how we look at other people's lives and we ourselves, because you know what's going on in your heart. There are parts of you that's a mess, amen? Just be honest. There's parts of you that are a mess. You may hide it from other people. Maybe people don't know about it. They don't know about those things that go on your head, your heart. But for most of us, we can say, you know, there's parts of me that are a mess. I'm really not doing all that great in that area. I was sitting over here worshiping. The first thing that came through my head, because my son Austin's driving back from Palm Springs this morning with some friends. He's going to be killed. So my lack of faith is like, you know, for like two minutes I'm arguing with God. It's like, no, he's not. Oh, that's right. You got that under control, God. We have lapses of faith. We have have lapses of trust. There's all kinds of things going on in our lives. You know what? Each one of us, every person on this earth has the same exact basic problem, and that is we're not perfect. And whatever we have that's good, it's because of him. And whatever we lack, it's because we're not doing what we should in him. We need to recognize it. The New Living Translation of verse 7 says, What makes you better than anyone else? Man, jot that down. What makes you better than anyone else? In light of the comparative standard being Jesus Christ, what makes you better than anybody else? That's a tough one, isn't it? Think about it for a second. Compared to Jesus, dirt. Compared to Jesus, that's why Paul said, filthy rags. Compared to Jesus, Paul said, trash. Compared to Jesus, Scripture says, we're as refuse. You see, when you you compare other people to Jesus and you compare yourself to Jesus, none of us have any reason to boast. I can compare anybody I want to me, and I can say, well, they don't do this as well as I do. They don't do this, or they can't say that, or perhaps their vocabulary isn't what mine is, after all. you know." But when you pick Jesus as a standard, a whole different matter, isn't it? What it's really saying here is we need to make sure that we're not judging other people on anything other than Christ. Does that mean that we don't judge sin? The answer to that is no. Matter of fact, Jesus said we are to, in essence, inspect the fruit in other people's lives, but not to judge their motivation. And this is the issue that I think most people have. We often look at what other people do and we judge why they're doing it. What's the secret thing in their heart that causes them to say or do or be like that? And that's the problem. We all have the capacity to sin. We're going to do dumb things. The question for us is, what are we going to do with having done dumb things? Are we going to seek to restore? Are we going to seek to build up? We we will have to correct at times. We're going to see that in the incoming chapters. But how we treat each other ought to be like the Lord would treat us. I don't know about you, but I'm real glad that the Lord doesn't send a lightning bolt my way every morning. You know, that I get up and I make it two or three steps and it's like... 
He's like a cattle prod just, just for good measure because he knows I'm going to mess up. I'm glad God doesn't do that. Why do we do that to others? That's the question. Why do we do that to others? We're not all that. We should be humble. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above. Amen. When my standard is up here, and I'm looking up here, and I'm saying, Lord, I need to fix my gaze on heaven, and I want my outlook to be heavenly, and I want my inlook to be heavenly, and I want to make sure that I'm treating people as you would treat them. When I have that view, I don't look down on anybody. I can't. Because the standard's Christ. It's not Jeff. When the standard is Jeff, there's going to be a lot of people that won't meet that standard. And none of you are wicked enough. See, I said that in jest. But here's what I'm really saying. If you're truthful, it's actually true, isn't it? Because you know you. You know what's going on in your heart. You know what's buried deep in there. You know the thoughts you have when nobody's around. Can you imagine if somebody jotted those things down? Somebody's got the magic mind reader. It's like a new Kindle thing. You just put it near your head and it's just like, oh no. You're thinking that right now? Imagine somebody could do that. I'm pretty sure most of you would fail on a regular basis. Matter of fact, we'd all be taking our tablets and throwing them into the woods. Going, I don't even want to know. Sometimes in marital counseling, I'll actually ask the husband or the wife, do you really want to know everything your spouse is thinking? In Jesus' name, the answer to that's no. In O. Capital, underline, underscore, highlight, no. But sometimes we treat people like we could make a judgment based on what they're thinking compared to who we are. It's not Jesus. It's not his love. Verse 8 in the New International Version says, Oh, of course. You already have all you want. You've already become rich. In other words, verse 8 says, sarcastically, That's right, you're perfect. You're so awesome. You are amazingly wonderful, and everybody should want to be just like you. Ouch. But if we're honest... We judge other people like that sometimes, don't we? Because the comparison isn't Jesus. It's you or it's me. We need to be careful. It's a huge reality check. If you remember the Gospels, both Luke and Matthew record a a little interplay between James and John and their, their mama. It's not ever a good thing when you're an adult and your mom has to speak for you. That should tell you something, okay? But James and John are with Jesus, and and the discussion, as it had been previously, was who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. 
And, of course, mom is thinking, well, just put one on the right, one on the left. Of course, they're awesome. That's kind of how we are at times. Jesus chided them, and I want to paraphrase his answer for you. What he really said to them is, those who are great really don't care because they're too busy serving. You, you see, greatness and lack of humility, as far as Christians are concerned, can't coexist. You, you have to have the humility in order to be great. You have to have the lack of a judgmental heart in order to be great. You have to have a lack of pride in order to really be great. You have to be a servant in order to be great. You have to be other-centered in order to be great. That's what Scripture says. But for us, sometimes we, we flip the tables around. You just need to be as good as I am, and then you're great. That's a sad commentary. Because if the world standard were me, we're all in deep trouble. We should just nuke the earth now. It'd save a lot of trouble. You see, we have oftentimes an inflated sense of self-importance. An inflated sense of value. And it's not that everybody needs to go home and just introspectively pick apart everything that you are as a human being. That's not what Scripture is saying at all. But it is a recognition that each one of us has our own issues. Amen? We do. We've all got stuff. Still, even as redeemed children of God, we've still got stuff. We've got things. And because each one of us has stuff, each one of us has things, we ought to be really understanding of stuff and things in other people's lives. And not so busy judging whatever it is that they have that you don't have or something that doesn't meet that standard that you think ought to exist in their life. And Paul goes on now in verse 9 as we pick this up. For I think that God has displayed us, the New Living Translation says, as the apostles last. Put us last. As men condemned to death. We've been made a spectacle to the world, both the angels and to men. You see, this is the example that we have of the, of the author of a third of the New Testament. As an apostle, he says, put us last. We're a spectacle of what God allows in the lives of those who serve him. Condemned. Men who'd ultimately put, be put to death. James, the, the son of Zebedee, was the first of the apostles to be martyred. History widely tells us that all of them eventually lost their lives, save John, who spent his last years in the island of Patmos in exile. But the bottom line is, is the example that we have when, when God puts someone on display. It's not for their human characteristics. When God puts someone on display, they're, they're made a spectacle of because, in essence, they are so different than the world. If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, it isn't being like the world. 
if you get an opportunity to, to meet with some of these men and women who show the love of the Lord in practical ways and are being used of God in extreme circumstances, you're going to find something very consistent in their lives. They're unbelievably humble. I've sat with some tremendous men of God. Dr. Henry Blackaby. I've spent I don't know how many days, hours, weeks with Pastor Chuck. When you look at their lives, apart from Christ, there isn't anything. It's all that matters. Says God get the glory for it. I was with Pastor Chuck a little over a week ago, and as I was just briefly talking to him, he couldn't believe what God had done in his life. You know, he's going to be 85 years old here shortly. Couldn't believe what God's done in his life. He's stunned. Here's a man that's responsible for a, a movement that now has over 2,000 churches around the world. Millions of people have been affected by the ministry of Calvary Chapel. All he could say was, I'm just blessed. That's the type of humility that we're to have in Christ. Verse 10 says, for we are fools for Christ. Some more sarcasm coming your way. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. You see, all of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we can look at our lives and go, man, I could grow in that area. I could do better in this. I absolutely am not meeting the standard of God's Word in this area of my life. We need to be careful that we don't portray to other people that we're further along the road of our spiritual growth and maturity than we really are. Because it gives them a false sense. We need to make sure that God is glorified in us. And that means He needs to get the credit. Any good thing, as Paul said, is from the Lord. It's not from me. This church doesn't exist because of me. This church exists because of Jesus. This building belongs to Jesus. My home belongs to Jesus. He gets the credit for all of it. Not wise planning on my part. It's a magnificent God who's simply chosen to bless. Verse 11, And to the present hour, speaking of their own condition, the condition of the apostles, and I want you to really focus in on this for just a moment. This is the creme de la creme of spiritual people ever in the history of the world since Jesus got here, okay? These are the apostles that are being spoken of. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed. We're beaten. We're homeless. We labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. 
We've been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things right up to this very moment. You, you see, what Scripture is speaking to us is the world's standard is not God's standard. You see, the world says if somebody treats you poorly, you treat them more poorly back. The world says if someone says something mean to you, you need to one-up them with some new meanness. Find a new level of degradation that you can throw their way. The world says when you've been treated unkindly, you just be mean back to them a couple of times over. And here the Apostle Paul says to us, and by example says to us, when people treat you poorly, be kind to them. When people say mean things to you, find a way to speak lovingly back to them. When someone gives you the raw deal, you give them the best deal. And oh, by the way, don't expect anything. Be thankful for whatever you have, even if it's nothing. You see, the church at Corinth had a warped viewpoint of what it means to be a child of God. Frankly, it's the same viewpoint that's purported on TBN. You know, if you're a child of God, you're just going to be wealthy. You'll have some diamond rings. You'll probably have your own Bentley in a... 10,000 square foot house because God wants you to be rich. Now, if that were true, I'm thinking the Bible's messed up because the most spiritual guys that we know of that have ever walked this earth all were martyred. They died paupers. Here it says they don't even have proper clothing. Now, it has nothing to do with what you have. It's what you are that matters to God. How many Christians today are willing to take up the cause of Christ under those kinds of circumstances? I can tell you right now, we need more Christians that are willing to take up the cause of Christ under those circumstances. Before anybody gets the wrong opinion, it doesn't mean that God's calling you to destitution. It doesn't mean that you can't be absolutely wealthy. It doesn't mean you can't own wonderful things. It doesn't mean you can't have nice cars, nice clothes, nice house. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that if you have those things, then what should happen is you should give glory to the Lord. And you should use those things for the kingdom and not for your own purposes. Doesn't mean you can't have vacations. Doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life. But what it does mean is that everything that you are, you got from God. And everything you will ever be is because of him. And if that's the case, the world should know about it through the things that you own, through the things that you possess, so to speak. They're just on loan from God. Rush Limbaugh is not on loan from God. He is just a prideful, arrogant blowhard for the most part. we need to realize that we don't have any business judging other people when the standard's Christ. 
Paul said they were basically the dregs of society. <laughs> Too many people, I think. It's, isn't it weird when you, you read the lives of professional athletes? I think they believe the stories that other people write about them. Oh, he's near godlike. No, not really. There's nothing godlike about most professional athletes. Isn't it funny how we lower our standard to, you know, the stars of Beverly Hills, the power players of politics, or those in the financial world? We we look at the world to get our measure of greatness. We need to be looking at the cross of Christ to get our measure of greatness. That's what makes men great, women great. I love verse 14. And please underline it. It's kind of something you need to keep in view all the time when you read hard-to-swallow passages of Scripture. For I am not writing these things, the New Living Translation says, to shame you. Paul didn't write these things. The Holy Spirit didn't author these things. God didn't leave these things in His Word to shame you. He's not trying to put you down. not trying to put you in a place to where you just walk away defeated. But to warn you as my beloved children. We warn our children. We, we pass along wisdom to our children. We, we give them those corrective speeches, if you will. Because we love them. We want what's best. God wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is that we humbly walk on this earth while we're here for the glory of God. It's a very dangerous thing to begin to think that you are all that. I can't tell you how many pastors have fallen in sin and lost their churches because they believed their own press reports. Because they think they're beyond the Bible themselves. Because they think that those things, God will just simply overlook them. Because after all, I am a prince in ministry. God help us. God help us. God help me. He goes on to continue his little sarcastic Vent here. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, didn't I bring you to the Lord, it says? You have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you, and so I ask you to follow my example and do as I do. He says, oh, that's right. I'm the one who shared the gospel with you in the first place. I may actually have a little bit uh, at stake here. What he was saying to him was, he says, I didn't share the gospel with you to become lifted up with pride and start judging everybody else on the face of the earth. I brought you the gospel because you needed a savior. Because just like me, your life was a mess and you were going to perish. I gave you these words of kingdom living so that you could live them so that other people could get saved, not so you could start some wonderful club with a membership of exactly one, you. 
because you're the only one that can meet the standards to be in your club. I brought you the gospel, which is the great great equalizer. Amen? Compared to the righteousness of Christ, anybody top that? The answer is no. You're going to be saved. You're saved by grace and through faith, period. You don't have to worry about there becoming some other standard. So we're all saved the same way. We're all in the same place. Paul said, I I brought you the good news of the gospel. But these words that he's speaking are motivated by love. Points to the character that they ought to have in Christ. Verse 17 says, And for this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. Notice my ways in Christ. Not my ways, but my ways in Christ. As I notice this, teach everywhere in every church. The standard is Christ everywhere in every church. The gospel is relevant and relative to everywhere and every church. The truths of the Bible are the same truths in every church. They'll have cultural relevancy. They'll have geographic relevancy. But it's the same truths. It's the same standard. And so he says, here's the standard for you. And the standard, family of God, is Jesus. It's not whether one church is better than another church. It's not whether one pastor is a better teacher than another pastor. It's not whether one worship team is better than another worship team. Those things, spiritual greatness don't make. Spiritual greatness comes from being like Jesus. And there are people who can barely speak to other people that are great in Jesus. There are people who have nothing that can't sing a lick who are great in Jesus. I've heard some of the sweetest worship come out of people that don't have any instruments at all. You see, greatness is being about Jesus. And when we judge other people based on Jesus, we're going to be able to look correctly. Timothy highly likely arrived in Corinth shortly after this letter did. And as he got there, I only wonder what it was that he was met with. Because sometimes when you give a word of exhortation to somebody, it kind of sets up a little bit of a hostile environment. Because our human response to this is, I'm not prideful, which is a sure sign that you actually are. I'm totally fine, which is a sure sign that you're not. You ever notice how you get those phone calls and somebody wants to talk to you? What do you do? First, you try and find out what they want to talk about, and then you begin to build your case. Amen? Well, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I wasn't there. I didn't do this. didn't do that. That's because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And each one of us has a propensity to be prideful, some more than others. We're to be an example of Jesus. In verse 18, And now some are puffed up. 
as though I were not coming to you. The way you can look at this, doesn't matter who comes to you. God saw it. God heard it. He understood fully. Some people are, well, you know, I didn't get caught. Nobody knows. Just remember this. God did see it. God knows why you said it. God knows why you did it. God looks at everything that we do from a perfect standard. He's not fooled by our little wave of the hand deception. It wasn't me. He knows. Now some are puffed up as though I weren't coming to you. But I will come shortly. If the Lord wills. The Lord's coming back. And one day you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for everything that you've done in this flesh. I kind of want that to be a nice meeting for me. I began to worry about that about 20 years ago. It's like, Lord, I don't think I really want to see you today because it wouldn't be all that good. I'd like to have a few extra things to, to give back to you as, as a reward. Say, thank you for saving me. Not, ooh, that's terrible. Remember the wood, hay, the stubble? Or the gold, silver, precious things? I want to have some things to give to the Lord. He doesn't like pride. Well, here, I was arrogant and prideful. Now you can keep that. We'll put that over there in the heap, and that can get burned up with the rest of the garbage in your life. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Think of that for a second. God knows. Paul knew by the Spirit, but God knows. God knows the very substance of the intent of the heart of man. He not only knows what you did in secret, he actually knows why you did it. He knows what your intent was. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a scary thing at times for me. It's like, ooh, that's right, I, I probably shouldn't think that. I probably shouldn't act that way because behind it was not a good motivating factor. And if you think about this in the context of your friends, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, how patient are you when you recognize that you yourself fail at your own standard? How patient are you when you recognize that you yourself fail at your own standard? I don't like people not liking me. So if I want them to like me, I kind of need to be like a bull. Amen? Proverbs puts it this way. A man who desires friends should first himself be friendly. You know, if we want to portray the Lord well, then we need to have his standards, not ours. We need to hold people to God's standards, not mine. Because it's not easy being around perfect people, Amen? Probably some of you know some people that think a little more highly of themselves than they ought to. It's not easy being around those kind of people. The sad part is they're not as perfect as they pretend. And God knows that. In verse 20 it says, For the kingdom of God, I love the New Living translation of this, For the kingdom of God is not just fancy talk. 
It's living by God's power. It's not words. It's deeds. Your doctrine should lead to duty. The things that you say ought to also be borne out in what you do. It's not just a bunch of words. It's not like those blowhards on television that flap their lips for an hour, get paid $40 million a year, but don't have to suffer any of the consequences of the things that they say. Every action you undertake on this earth is going to have a consequence in heaven for either good or bad. The things that we do and the things that we say matter because they should result in us doing something that indicates that Jesus is the Lord of our life. And he should get the glory and the power for it. Speaking Christianese does not make you a Christian. Just because you know all the right words to say does not make you profitable for the kingdom. Just because you can talk the talk doesn't mean that you walk the walk. Amen? We need to make sure that we're walking the walk if we talk the talk. It's not just fancy talk. It's living by God's power. It's a big difference between knowing the right words and living the right way. Amen? Big difference between knowing the right words and living the right way. There are a lot of people that know the right words. I've had completely unsaved heathens quote scripture to me, chapter and verse. But they don't live it. If we're going to judge other people, we better be living by the standard that we ourselves purport to keep. Amen? That's why it's such an abomination, I think, to God when we judge each other, when we look at other people's motivations in their heart, and we ourselves are not living in all of the things that we ought to do the way God wants us to. As I said at the start of this, some of you may just be spot on with Jesus. Hallelujah, praise God. But there isn't a person in this room that can't stand some improvement in some area of their life. Amen? That's where this hits home for us. You see, I I take those things very seriously. I go, Lord, you know what? I'm talking this way, but I'm walking that way. God, help me to not hold somebody else to some standard. Because you know what? It's interesting to me how bitter people can point the finger at adulterers. It's interesting to me how unforgiving people can point the finger at drug dealers. It's interesting to me how perpetually angry people can point the finger at someone who's a homosexual. When the standard's Jesus... We all get a little tune-up, amen? Takes us right back to that humble understanding, hey, God, I need you desperately. My life needs your touch. Help me not to hold somebody else to a standard that I would fail at. And he ends this way in this chapter 4. It says, in which do you choose? Something that each of us can say, ask each day for, for our own selves. Which do you choose? Should I come with punishment and scolding? Now, if I ask you the simple question, you're going to answer this correctly. How many people like getting the spiritual tar beat out of them? It's not hard. I want a good whooping. 
I just enjoy having the tar slapped out of me every day. Which do you choose? Or should I come with quiet love and gentleness? I want the Lord to come to me with childlike understanding of who I am, that I'm, I'm frail and fractured and damaged and, and I need to be consoled and loved on. I'm a knucklehead. When you ask kids why they do what they do, you know the funny thing? They can never tell you, ever. Why did you light that dog on fire? I don't know. We just had the lighter and we were playing and he's got a big bald spot on his back. That's us. We don't really have an answer a lot of the time, most of the time, for why we do what we do, except for the fact that we're sinners who are saved by grace. And we need Jesus desperately every day. So if what you want is for God to come to you and lovingly take care of whatever issues there, to come with love and gentleness, now, Jeff, you're being a dope. You really shouldn't do that, because the next time you do that, I'm going to have to do something more stern. I don't want to do that, so please change. You don't want God to come to you going, okay, that's it. It's off to outer Mongolia for the winter with shorts. <laughs> you don't want God to treat you that way. Don't treat other people that way. Be kind. Be loving. Be gentle. Understand that you're dealing with failed, fractured, fragmented people, humankind. People that desperately need a touch most of the time from the Lord who don't want to get beat up. And if you do that, it's going to make you really humble. Because you're going to realize that you yourself need the same thing. And when you need what they need, it makes it real easy for you to not judge other people. And I pray that we do that, that we would be truly humble. We're going to partake of communion in just a moment. The worship team is going to come back out. The elders are going to begin to pass out the elements of communion. While we're thinking on this, if you turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, I want to share with you just briefly as we pass out the elements. And it says there in verse 5, of Philippians chapter 2. And it so perfectly ties in with our message this morning. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. What was that mind? Here it is. Who being in the form of God. Jesus was God. God incarnate in human flesh. He was 100% God, 100% man. He was never less than God. He was never less than fully human. Fully God, fully human.
who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Nothing lost. You compared God the Father to God the Son to God the Holy Spirit, you would have said exactly the same. But made himself, notice this, he had to make himself because he was God of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, taking off his garments of righteousness, in essence, while he was on this earth. Jesus did not walk around the earth with the Shekinah glory glowing from his head. Jesus wasn't found on this earth in a privileged status, if you will. He he had every single difficulty that you have ever gone through in your entire life applied to his. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was homeless. He didn't have the right clothes. His shoes wore out. He had not enough money. He was constantly in in need of, of someone making sure that he even had food at times. Because he didn't consider it robbery. As a servant coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. The elements that you hold in your hand, it's the work of the cross. Jesus humbled himself to be like you, be like me. How can we not humble ourselves to be like him? How can we not put forth those things in our lives which are indicative of his character and his nature. And it goes on to say, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. You, You see, the way to greatness in the kingdom is to be the servant of all. That's exactly what Jesus said. The way to greatness is to be the servant of all. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The elements you hold in your hand represent Christ serving you at Calvary's cross. In Christ serving me at Calvary's cross. That's our example. Brokenness, humility, God in human flesh, laying down the glory of heaven to come to this earth to identify with us. And because that's the case, it's also our standard. It's how we should live our lives so that the world would know about Jesus. Amen? We're going to worship the Lord, and as we worship, Make that your prayer. Lord, make me like Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross. Then we're going to partake of the elements. Let's worship.